0: What's up, good people? Welcome back to Holy Shit Pod, a holy irreverence, irreverently holy conversation about spirituality, culture, and the world. I'm Brandon T. Maxwell. I'm Katie Ricks.
1: I'm Sam White.
0: And together we are the unholy Trinity, aka your favorite
1: pastor. Holiness is still right. I'm holy. You are not holy.
0: Everyone is holy because of Jesus. In this week's episode, we are serving up progressive liberal
1: Christian realness. Holiness is still right.
0: This week, we're dialoguing about all the things that have transpired in the world, particularly America, over the last few days, including but not limited to Congress passing the infrastructure bill, the Dems losing big in the not-so-midterm midterm midterm elections, the role of critical race theory in those elections, and why NASCAR fans were chanting, fuck Joe Biden, or was it, let's go, Brandon? Who knows? Let's
1: go, Brandon!
0: (laughs) And we've also got a great word of thought where we'll look at a few passages from scripture and talk about the role of scripture and religious leadership in keeping our faith political. All that and
1: more coming your way right now here on the Holy Shit Pod. Let's get into it. Katie, why does it seem like he's reading, but we have nothing to read?
2: Because he always knows what he's talking about. So he scripts it out so that he looks like he's like, with it.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. He wants to make us look like fools. Okay.
0: I mean, you can talk off the top of your head. Some of us. I
1: don't have to make y'all look like
0: fools. Y'all do that yourselves. Good morning, good morning to all of our first-time visitors. You are now stumbling upon the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and the Aints. we just a small church on the side of the podcast road trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody.
1: I'm just a nobody. I don't know why they're like this. Trying to tell everybody. Body. Bounce somebody who can
0: save anybody. If this is your first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. To all of our members and regular attenders, you already know the drill. Welcome back and thank you for your dedication and faithfulness. Listen, today's church announcements and the Word of God are going to be something like story time with your three favorite pastors. Last week was a bit of a whirlwind in American politics. So we're just going to try to follow the narrative arc of all that happened last week. So last Wednesday, Democrats awoke to a sobering reality. Only one year after celebrating a major victory in the 2020 election, their slender congressional majorities are now even more at risk than they fear. And it's not clear that Joe Biden or the Democratic Party has a workable plan to rebalance the political landscape, tilting significantly against them. So what happened last week? For one, Virginia, right?
1: Virginia, Yunkin. What kind of name is Yunkin? Yunkin. Happened. For you who don't know, Glenn Youngkin, is that his first name? Child, I don't know. <laughs> I'll just make it sit up. I believe it's Glenn Youngkin. So, yes, that is correct. Glenn Youngkin was running um, as a Republican against Terry McAuliffe to become the next governor of the state of Virginia. Terry McAuliffe, of course, Democrat, previous governor in Virginia, previous governor with name recognition. With name recognition and actually did not like end in scandal, did not, he actually should have walked away uh, with this election. And some people are saying kudos to Glenn Youngkin. He has learned because Glenn Youngkin actually tried to put some distance in between himself and the former president, Donald Trump. And it was only at the very end that that Trump came in and, and said, hey, all my people, you also go out and vote. Um, because they, they knew that they didn't have to do it, that they were going to vote for him anyway. They're also saying out of this election that Glenn Youngkin has, is providing a blueprint for how to win without the baggage of Donald Trump. Um, and so he's basically winning the, the the extreme right of the Republican Party, and he's also winning the moderates of the Republican and the Democratic Party.
2: Yeah, I thought the Republican Party would have taken longer to get rid of the connection to Trump. I really thought it was going that way, but somehow these people have, they've pulled it back together and right gaining power again its
1: messaging though Brandon Brandon has always said this right It's it's messaging well it's, it's messaging and is their ability to coalesce and come together and be on the same page even if they agree with it or not unlike the Democrats and Joe uh, idiot and um, Kristen dummy uh, maybe we shouldn't put that in that sounds really uh bad uh, <laughs> but but it's messaging right so when Donald Trump was the president if they were masters of distraction, um smoking mirrors this don't pay attention to this thing that we're doing over here um we're going to make it all about this and now that Trump is no longer in office now it's kind of oh they want to teach your children that whiteness is evil mm-hmm. and this is not you know it's it's absolutely insane but the messaging is working and they've gone back to classic republican talking points
0: right so right. all it is is they try to make all the white people fearful of what's happening to the children So at some point, Youngkin, and other Republicans realize if we can make people scared about critical race theory, if we can make people scared of um, the fact that people may be trying to center the stories of Black people, that will do all the work that we need it to do. As you've already said, the base is going to show up regardless. All those folks who voted for Trump, all those folks who wear the MAGA hats, they're going to show up and vote Republican anyway if they're going to show up at all. But we can't continue to ostracize the moderates who all voted for Biden at alarming rates. I mean, Joe Biden won Virginia by 10 points. 10 points. These were solidly democratic
1: states. They were solidly democratic states and in the last election, Joe Biden was the closest thing to resemble a Democrat. Even though he tried to lean into his progressiveness, um, he was still for some people a moderate Democrat, but he was he was the Democrat. And so against Trump, of course he would win by ten. But against a moderate Republican, against someone who is presenting themselves as a moderate Republican, it's a different story. And then you've got Joe Manton who's coming out saying, basically, I'm not going to do anything progressive if it's if it's progressive. We are not a progressive country. We are a moderate. We are not even a moderate left country. We are dead in the center and that's where I'm going to be.
2: Well, again, this is a way, I mean for me, this is a way that the um the republicans always have another plan and the democrats are just thinking that um that people will go oh well, they of course they want um free healthcare and and you know college and child care but but people people assign the democrats to the left that's why we're losing the conservative democrats
0: well, and Democrats overplayed their hand as well, right? Like, at the end of the day, we had a discussion a long time ago about how defund the police and all of that language. Barack Obama came out and got slammed by all the progressive liberals because he said, stop saying defund the police. That's not actually what you mean, right? We actually got to see
1: that on the ballot. Didn't you call him a sellout when he did that? I did not. Um, Didn't you disagree with Obama when he t- uh, criticized that message? I mean, there's a recording of it. Uh, maybe I did. I'm pretty sure you were against him talking about that in that way.
0: And I still would say language matters. Right. And what It depends depends on your goal. I think what I sympathize with with Barack Obama is he was trying to say, what is your goal? If your goal is to actually try to transform something, you need to get the buy-in of the public. And the language of defund the police is going to ostracize people, which may detract from your goal. But I would personally say defund the police is still good language for what people are trying to say, but what is the goal? Is their goal to actually get buy-in and transform the police system or the public safety system? We got to see that on the ballot in Minneapolis. Overwhelmingly, Black people didn't vote for the bill to defund the police in Minneapolis. And they didn't actually call it the defund the police bill. They were trying to get the police department housed inside of a department of public safety that would consist of mental health professionals, first responders, social workers.
1: It's refunding,
0: reallocating.
1: Which is not defunding the police. Yep. It's reallocating funds and restructuring the police. So, and I was watching right after the election, I was in the gym because I work out a lot now because, you know, I look, I'm getting sexy. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm being sexy. I was in the gym. We can take that Uh, out of the podcast. You you agree. You agree. Yeah. Uh, I was bringing sexy back. No, it never left. Uh, I was in the gym and Don Lemon was on. And I know how most of us feel about Don. Uh, But Don said, I I said this and I'm going to say it again. And I'm not sorry about it. Defund the police was the dumbest messaging strategy that people could have used at the time because that stuff was on the ballot. And it did not work. Clearly, it did not work in Minneapolis where George Floyd was killed. And if there was ever a place that would test whether this messaging strategy worked, it would have been there.
2: Just proving that uh, Make America Great Again again is and messages like that are not reserved to or are not unique to just the rep- the Republican Party.
0: But that's a brilliant message. Make America great again, again is a brilliant message. Right.
1: Again, again.
0: Like you said in the last podcast, Ricks, so they're literally just pointing back and saying, we're going to do that same thing we did last time again. Yeah. It's all good. Whereas, defund the police requires me to explain exactly what I'm meaning. And by the time I've gotten 10 words out of my mouth, everybody's lost. This is another example of the limitations or the challenges associated with coalition building in the way that the Democrats do. Republicans know we're voting on whiteness. That's always going to be our message. Straight white maleness is what we're voting on. Democrats have to figure out how to articulate themselves to people who are moderate, people who are super liberal, people who are black, people who are white. In Minneapolis, black voters said, no, we don't want that. It was the progressive liberal white people who voted as the overwhelming majority in favor of defunding the police. And so how do you have this bill that really is about how people of color, Black folks in particular, are being treated by the police that Black people aren't even voting for? Something's off in your message.
1: I mean, because Black people actually don't want the police to go away. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and if yep. your messaging strategy is defund the police, it may be a great rallying cry in the streets after some very public... Um, injustice has happened. But if you actually have conversations with a lot of Black folks, a lot of families, a lot of older Black people, a lot of more moderate Black people, you'll find that that messaging actually also does not resonate.
2: It, it, it sounds more powerful than reallocate funds for the police. Like, you can't really get that. But you're right. You're right. And the, and the people who aren't going to question, the people who are listening to Fox News or whatever's worse than Fox News, they can just say it They're not going to ask any questions. They can just say, these people don't want any police. Your children are not going to be safe on the streets.
1: And that's exactly what they're going to say.
2: And they're not going to ask questions. They're not going to look into what Somebody thought about it.
1: Remember about immigration? Like when we we talked about reforming immigration, the only messaging that came out of Fox and Republican was open borders. These people want open borders. They want to open the borders and let everybody come into the country. Your jobs are not safe. Your children are not safe. There's going to be crime everywhere. Trump even said they're not sending us their best people. They're sending us the rapists and the murderers. And that's exactly what we give them when we come up with messaging strategies like defund the police.
2: And then they then they create a foundation of attacks against folks that this right-wing kind of mob thinks, oh, well, that person is Latino. They must be a rapist or a murderer. Like, no, no. Or a Muslim person. Like, right, right. It just fortifies the racism and ethnocentrism that's already exists here. And they've got a whole group of people that they keep riling up.
0: It doesn't take much to rile up white fear it doesn't take much to remind people that they are white. And I think what Republicans know they can do very quickly and very easily is figure out the way to remind people that they are white and to pull them back over. And if you're somebody who hasn't done the work to process your whiteness, or even if you are somebody who's done the work to process your whiteness, it still is easiest to go back to your default settings when things feel stressful and tense. And so I'm sitting here, and what I hear is that my children are learning critical race theory in schools, and the Republicans that are saying it don't even know what critical race theory is. And
1: they're actually not learning it in And they're not right. learning it in school. Right.
0: Let's press that. Because it was a movement that initially started at Harvard under Professor Derrick Bell in the 1980s. And it was a reaction to critical legal studies, which were being done in the 70s, that were trying to dissect this notion that law was just in neutral. So it's a legal construct. That you would learn in a graduate law program. Mm-hmm. No,
2: that's exactly what Jordan like. She's learning civics, and she's in this AP class or what have you. And her who's Jordan? Oh, sorry, my daughter. Should I say my daughter?
1: <laughs> no, everybody. Everybody <laughs> probably knows who she is now.
2: But she's studying this, and and like the first day, this teacher who's been in politics and stuff, he's like, we. He said the exact same thing you just said, Brandon. We don't study critical race theory. It's a legal argument. You will learn about this in law school. So it's not. It's not even. Um, it's not even worth having as a, as a talking point. Somebody else, you know, somebody else said critical race theory is um, teaching actual American history, which is also, I mean, it's not that, but it is that. People don't want to know the truth about what the world looks like.
1: Is that your dog crying? His. I think, I'm like, what's making that squeaking noise? I'm over here trying to see if somebody's downstairs. (laughs) But the thing with critical race theory is, and Republicans
0: have weaponized the term, because the truth of the matter is that critical race theory did make possible other types of critical studies around race, Mm -hmm. right? Some of the Black liberation tradition came of age in the 70s right before critical race theory was coming to be formalized. And so there is something that happened as a result of critical race theory in other academic disciplines wherein we started thinking About what it meant for Black people to be political, historical, theological, social subjects in and of themselves, where we don't just say, we're gonna teach about slavery for one week at the very beginning of American history, and then not talk about Black people again until Martin Luther King Day, once every single year. What Republicans know is that when they say critical race theory, what they're conjuring up is the fear that Black people have agency, Black people are human, Black people have power and have voice, and that's really what their message is. You don't want your children to think about Black people as political subjects.
1: I think for the architects of the messaging strategy, and for the people who are so deeply connected and involved in it, I. Think that's the case, but I think on a larger scale, it has become the boogeyman that is needed to instill that fear. Whether the masses of the majority actually understand the argument that you just made, Brandon, whether they actually have bought into this idea of black people having agency or not, it's it's the boogeyman. It's 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 what it's what is needed um, to make sure this country. And the decreasing majority in this country, which, which are white folks, uh, maintain their power and their majority. Correct. Uh, at, at one point before critical race, it was all about immigration. And when it looked like we were en route to becoming a majority minority country by a certain time, there were changes to the census. There were changes to how you identified. A, the, were you Hispanic or non-Hispanic white? You know, all of these things to make sure that whiteness remained on the top. And now we've shifted and now it's something else. Now it's something, that there always has to be a boogeyman for whiteness to maintain power. And right now it's critical race theory.
2: Right, and it's the way that, it's just the modern version of trying to hold the same fear that folks were using when people were enslaved, then in um, when everything got taken away after Reconstruction. Am I getting my history right there? Like when the Black folks were making it They were having their own businesses and all of a sudden, like, no, we can't have this. They're perpetuating that. It's just the modern version of it. And they don't even know... They
0: don't even know because they haven't learned any history either. I'm, I'm trying to shift and wrap up these church announcements. We've went a little bit long today. I know y'all, we try to get it done. In oh, this ain't
1: the word of pot? This is still church announcements.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> we are still churchy. But announcing.
0: the thing about it is, so Democrats have had control, at least from as far as public perceptions concerned. The narrative that we heard in the media is Democrats control both the Senate and the House. They control the legislative branch, the executive branch. The only thing they don't control is the judicial branch, and they like us to think that the courts aren't politicized. And So the message is the Democrats haven't done anything with that. All they've done is spent more money. The Republican message is when we had a little bit of power, we spent a lot of money and you saw that. We sent you two checks with our guy's name on the bottom of the check. Never before, at least in my lifetime, I don't think in American history, has there been a time where the government has sent every single American who was eligible a physical check with the president's name on it. That happened under the Republicans. We
1: got three checks. It was two. No, it was two. It was three. We got two from Trump and one from Biden. Biden didn't send me no check. Where's my money? We did get a stimulus check from Biden. What he you saying? Remember, he promised $2,000 checks and Trump's second check was like 600 or something. And then Biden sent the remainder of the 2000 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. So we got three checks total.
0: Yeah. And then parents are getting more. But that's all right. But I think the point is, that happened under Re- the Republicans. And there's a way in which they can claim credit for it. And there's all this spending Democrats are trying to do to take action on climate change, to take action on some of the major issues that are before us, but nothing is happening. And so if nothing is happening with these Democrats who had all these visions of productivity and transformation, and we still don't have action on the climate, why would I vote for them again? Do you see the tension?
1: I definitely see the tension. The sad part is you can't even blame it on the Republicans because it's actually part, people who are part of the Democratic Party who are, as as uh, Nancy Pelosi would say, embarrassing the president. I still remember when Joe Biden was elected and Manchin was like, we're going to help make this president successful. And Joe Manchin is the one who is standing in the way Of legislation that's going to support, that's going to lift the majority of Americans, that's going to help lift um, the majority of children that are in poverty in this country out of poverty. It's going to help deal with issues about around climate change. It's going to help deal with issues that we desperately need to deal with in this country that affect not just us but the rest of this world. And it's it's the Democrats standing in the way. And and we let's talk about voting and all of the barriers that people are putting in front of Black people and people of color to vote. And it's the Democrats. So why should they remain in power?
2: Right. So, like, when you were talking, what I was thinking about is again that goes back to messaging, right? Because some, like, some people are not like check the box that gives you a straight party ticket. But the reality is that folks aren't voting straight party ticket anymore. You have you've got to be able to speak to the people who are toeing that line. Joe Manchin's people, Kristen Cinemas people, so that they can come along. And the Democrats haven't done that. Am I wrong?
0: Yeah. No, you're not wrong. I, just, I think I'm just I'm kind of stuck in between these two approaches because there's a part of me that also says you've heard me say this before. This is like a one note song. It's the, it's my standard soapbox. I want Democrats to be ruthless. I want them to be reckless. I want them to go in with like reckless abandon and just say, we know that we have justice, we have truth, we have whatever on our side. We're going to advance that fully and we're not going to apologize for it. But what I experienced them doing is taking this middle-of-the-road approach that suggests that there's still some sort of modicum of normalcy in our political system. And they're fearful of actually making the change. Why have we not yet killed the filibuster? Why has Joe Biden not taken action on the Supreme Court? We have clearly seen that these actors do not give two shits about whatever standards of normalcy have been established for the last however many years and that they're willing to toss them out whenever they so choose. So why is it the Democrats are still trying to appeal to these norms in order to bring about transformation?
1: It's not the Democrats.
0: The Democratic Party as a whole?
1: It's not the Democratic Party as a whole. It's certain one. When you said, why won't the Democrats? I think there's a majority of folks who will be happy to get rid of the filibuster and move forward with some of the things that the Republicans are obstructing. You know, I I think this whole idea that Manchin has that like you're saying, Brandon, I still have some trust in the system. Like when literally the last two Supreme Court justices, the Republicans in power actually blocked Obama's ability to nominate and to uh well he nominated, but they didn't, they didn't, the Senate actually didn't um consider Merrick Garland. Turnaround when Trump is in office, actually. Do the exact opposite, right. and then come back and say, "If there's a, a seat vacant under Biden's presidency, we're going to block that one too." And, but you're still Joe Manchin; you're still saying uh, it has to be bipartisan, you know. And it's kind of like like I'm, I'm like you, Brandon. Like, uh, how are you refusing to do what's right? So you can say, "Yes, vote. We need these voting rights bills passed. We need to. This is right, but it's got to happen." Bipartisan, Even though people, they're showing you that they have no interest to be bipartisan. Like, right. I don't know. I, I can't do that. If you show me that the system is against me, I'm not going to have any trust or any faith in it. I cannot. I cannot. I don't care what you dangle in front of me. I don't care what you say. I cannot have trust or faith in it. In Black communities, we talk about
0: skin folk not being your folk. For Democrats, I think that we need to get to the place where these political labels of Democrat, Republican, or whatever the other categories are, we actually let those things go to figure out how do we actually build broader coalitions that transcend the lines of our parties. But we've been going at this for a while because, again, a lot happened in the last week. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to probably keep talking about this, but do it through the lens of Scripture like your pastor should be doing on Sunday mornings. We'll be right back after this. Don't go anywhere. But did y'all hear about the NASCAR crowd chanting "fuck Joe Biden" and "Talibez"?
1: I thought they were saying, "Well, they were saying let's go Brandon," right?
0: No, they were all chanting "fuck Joe Biden," <laughs> and then one of the announcers said, "They're like, what are they saying?" And he was like, "Oh, they're just saying let's go Brandon." <laughs> oh. And I don't know if that's what he actually thought or feels trying to cover. Trying to cover, <laughs> but it was crystal clear that "fuck Joe Biden" was it. But now. Apparently that's like the new thing for conservatives to say. Didn't, are,
1: didn't one of the senators like wear a face mask that had "Let's, let's go, go branded on it cause, uh, to Congress? Because it's code for "fuck Joe Biden." Right? Uh, wow! Talk about messaging.
2: <laughs> so we shouldn't get those in support of you or like to honor you. Because-
1: I thought, yeah, because I, or- I ordered us all three, and so now I've got to cancel the order.
2: <laughs> right? Uh, you, you already ordered them. Ca- yeah, yeah. You can send them
0: back. Welcome back from back Quit that. Quick. Quit. Welcome back from that quick break. There were actually three church announcements built into that prior segment. We had uh, the announcement about the Democrats losing big and the not-so-midterm midterms, the infrastructure bill passing, and the ways that critical race theory is being deployed in our current political context in order to help Republicans win and scare the white folks into rejoining the white team. For today's word of pod, we're going to actually lean into the fact that this is supposed to be sort of like a sermon. So if you aren't familiar with this thing called the revival, Common Lectionary. The Revised Common Lectionary is a tool that I used to think only white people used, but I now realize that it's not just white people, it's certain denominational traditions, but I still do have the experience that mostly white people rigidly stick to the lectionary. It provides four scriptures every single week from which you can preach. It gives you an Old Testament or Hebrew Bible passage. It gives a Psalm, a New Testament passage, and a Gospel reading every single week. What I used to do when I was preaching regularly, and even still when I'm invited to preach, I'm not somebody that likes to sit there and tarry for the spirit and figure out what's the scripture I need to use. That takes too much work and too much time. I go to the Revised Common Lectionary and I say, Holy Ghost, let me know which one I need to preach from. And then I go to Dropbox and see if I've got any old sermons from a prior time that that scripture was used. And sometimes the Holy Ghost moves on that Dropbox file. <laughs> this is just being transparent on today. Come on. Let me tell you, you better you better keep them all, <laughs> sermons. Listen, Listen. I've gotten to the place where I title my stuff year B. Oh my goodness. <laughs> year B and the date. Right. So we're going to look at the passages that were assigned to yesterday. And if you're listening to this on Monday, it would have been yesterday, but just this past Sunday, November the 7th.
2: Now, wait, should you tell the date or should you just go... Year B, season after Pentecost, proper 28. So when somebody, when we replay that, this, you know, that. okay,
0: just saying. What Katie just said. It's all going in the edit. We don't have time for any grill edits this week. So you're getting all of the, well, most <laughs> of the fodder. There are some things that we have to take <laughs> out. <laughs>
2: You can't put that in in (laughs) there. Or you can, actually.
0: Oh, I am. I'm going to leave all this in too. I want people to be curious about what exactly isn't in here.
1: We want to thank our regular listeners (laughs) who listen because they like us and who listen because they want to know what we say.
0: And the new people who are here to be nosy. (laughs) So each week you can go to the lectionary if you so choose to. If you are a person who preaches, you can utilize the lectionary. We'll put a link in the show notes um, as a starting point for your sermon prep. So this week there are actually two Old Testament passages and two Psalms. The epistle is from Hebrews and the gospel is from Mark. I don't know how y'all do this, but I typically just kind of look and see if there's anything that stands out to me.
1: Is there one of these that stands out to y'all? Yes, Psalms 127 because it's short and (laughs) because I love that scripture. It's so I love Psalms 127. But you got to read it in King James. Now, I know y'all white folks don't like King James, but I'm going to read it in King James. I'm going to let Katie read it in in NRSV.
2: Uh, See, I read things in CEB. No, you don't. Yes. Do you really? Actually, yes. We use the NRSV in seminary. In college, we used the
1: RSV, but that's all right. College. Oh, that's back in the 70s, 60s. But anyway. So Sam
0: read 127.
1: Except the Lord build the house. Come on, King James. They labor in vain that building. Mm -hmm. Except the Lord keep the city. The watchman waketh, but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is, is reward. It's a lot of masculine it's language. Shocking. In
0: you the one that wanted to read the King James? Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> I only like the first two scriptures <laughs> in King James.
2: Yeah, it, yeah, the Common English Bible ha, like takes it in a totally different direction. Well, not totally.
1: Yeah, read that. Read, read that in Common English.
2: Okay, it won't be as, you know. Patriarchal? Fancy.
1: That too, both. (laughs) She was saying charismatic, but he said patriarchal. She said fancy, but I know what she meant.
2: Unless it is the Lord who builds the house, the builder's work is pointless. Unless it is the Lord who protects the city, the guard on duty is pointless. It is pointless that you get up early and stay up late eating the bread of hard labor because God gives sleep to those God loves. No doubt about it. Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a divine reward. The children born when one is young are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. The person who fills a quiver full of them, I'm sorry, the person who fills a quiver full with them is truly happy. They won't be ashamed when arguing with their enemies in the gate.
1: You know, I think it was helpful that we read those two different versions. So for all of you folks who really cleave to the King James, I hope you heard the difference in those two passages
0: of Scripture. You just said cleave. It's like King James is contagious. No one says cleave. Cleave. (laughs) That's that's a King James word because a person leaves from their... A parent's household and Cleave's. Yes.
1: I'm trying to connect with the people. I'm trying to connect with the King James people. I'm trying to let them know. But
0: I I think that's a helpful thing, right? So like the first thing, and I should also say, this question has come from a few of you to talk about like, what is the role of politics in preaching? There's a school of thought that says we shouldn't be political in our sermons. Our sermons are something other than political. And there's a school of thought that says everything that we do inside of a church has to be political. I would say that the three of us land in that latter camp wherein the the sermon is always a political moment, even the spiritual is political, Mm -hmm. even the personal is political. We lean into that reality pretty strongly on this podcast. Even reading these two translations highlights every single translation you read has a political agenda. And they have commitments and goals in mind in terms of how we talk about man, humans, hims versus thems, right? So those things are also embedded in the text. I don't know if I'm connecting with this passage. Tell me why Sam, you are connected with this particular passage as it relates to what's happening in the political world right now.
1: Oh, that's what that's what we were talking about. You just wanted to read the King James. I just like the scripture about, except God is building the house, those who build it labor and things. Because I was like, this Mark 12 passage is fancy. Let me read it. As he was teaching, he said, watch out for the legal
0: experts. They like to walk around in long robes. Oh, shit. Yeah. We should have did that one. They want to be greeted with (laughs) honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes. Ah. And to show off they say long prayers, they will be judged most harshly. My God, let's
1: just stop right there. (laughs) Why did I not read that first? I don't know why you didn't.
2: (laughs) Because the other one had a fancy beginning, you could uh, be, hey, uh, you could tap into. Well, the...
1: I didn't read the mark at all, so I didn't know. If I had read that first, I would have definitely went with that one.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, because this is completely political, right? I mean, this is it is Jesus calling out this idea that the people who have power, the people who have knowledge, the people who are most faithful are those who have money and have all the learned scholarship, and and it's like the people because it goes on to the. The widows might right, like it's people who are living in the daily their daily lives, trying to scrape everything together to live. That doesn't mean that people who aren't in power can't be faithful, but the world prioritizes their knowledge instead of like other people.
1: I, I, and not just that, I I've, I love the scripture and I've preached it um a few times, um that Jesus that Jesus says this like look out for these people. It's it it's an indictment on those who are in power, right? And not just those who are in power, but the way that they wield their power. Um, he says, those who sit at the, at the head of the banquet table and they wear long flowing robes, Jesus says, they destroy widows' houses. And then he takes the disciples, sits them on the opposite side of the treasury and says, look, and there comes an old lady who puts her last two mites um, in the treasury. And he says, she has given more than anybody else but look at what she's given it to to these people who have a thirst or a lust or a desire for power, these people who aren't concerned about her well-being, these people who aren't trying to lift her up even though there's a mandate that this is the responsibility of, of, of the government of because at that particular time you know the, the church was the government of the government. Of that religious community, they destroy, the, the, those who are in power are reckless and irresponsible and they destroy widows houses. And then he sits them down and shows them exactly how, how this happened. She does. I'm also aware that what's easiest for me to
0: do, especially if I'm a guest preacher, is to take what's happening in the world and pull it into my sermon. But oftentimes, I think the even more effective use of the political is to know the exact context into which you're preaching and the way that the broader political context is impacting that particular community. Yep. If I'm yep. going to preach at your church, if I've never attended, you'll see me sneak in the back one Sunday before I preach because I need to see what's happening in the space. I need to figure out who greets me, who doesn't, who's invisible, who's esteemed, who gets to sit in the high place. And so I remember going to this church one time, and it was full of academics. And I was thinking about going back to that church and preaching this same passage. And if I were to say, in that church, watch out for the legal experts, I might say, watch out for the professor Watch out for those who clothe themselves in long academic robes. Watch out for the academic administrators. Watch out for those who demand certain types of power, because that's going to read differently in that particular context wherein you have a bunch of academic scholars. But if I go to another place and it's a bunch of business executives, I might choose different images. I might, so I might say, watch out for your shareholders. Watch out for those who attempt to accrue more value in your organization by demanding more shares so that they can have more control. When we think about particular communities as well, I think there's a way in which oftentimes preachers who do political preaching fail at the task when they don't take their own context seriously or the context into which they're preaching.
2: I agree with everything you said. I I I don't. I hadn't thought about going to a church beforehand just to see that's a great idea. I always Brandon don't
1: if, do that either. He don't do I that. I actually do. It's ridiculous, but I do it, especially now that I can live stream it. But what do you do when you have to like preach out out, out of state or something like when you can't you go? Talk how to do the you pastor. Live you, you, so i i so I actually don't attend, but I do I do try to have conversations with. Like, if, I, if I'm talking to the person who's inviting me, I'll say, tell me a little more about your church. What's happening? What's affecting the congregation? So I guess that's one way to do it if you can't actually uh, make it to the church. But pastors lie. It's usually not the pastor that I'm talking to. But Katie, Sam interrupted you. You were saying something about- I'm sorry, Katie.
2: No, I was just saying exactly what Sam said when he interrupted me, is that I call and talk
1: to sorry. You.
2: The I mean, because I find it really difficult to preach in- um in a context that i don't know because my sermons are deeply contextual and so um yeah so i'm also very cautious about intentional about the places that i go to preach if i know the pastor really well if i know that person's going to be able to tell me exactly what is going on if i can trust them to do that because because that's important and even if the congregation needs to be pushed on something i think sometimes somebody who's coming in can do it in a way that um that the pastor can't do.
0: Absolutely. To wrap up our Word of Pot conversation... Wrap it up. Wrap it up. If you are a person who preaches, you might try to figure out who your dialogue partners are so that you can have this kind of lively conversation before you preach, because it's going to inevitably shape how you're preaching to your congregation and the effectiveness with which that message lands. Craig, you were a listener who asked us this question. I think when I read this particular passage and the one that we read before... I can't help but just see that Jesus is being politically messy and attempting to make a statement about what is happening in these people's lives he, the the passage that follows this um, in Mark is the story about the woman with the two mites
2: we just said that earlier but you go ahead yeah
1: I just said that He's,
2: well I had said it too
0: before you did but yes mm-hmm. yeah
1: and he want to make it seem like he introduced that okay <laughs> <laughs> he might even cut out my edit so that his can be the first, only one.
0: As has already been stated by the other two hosts of the podcast, this, this passage goes into the, woman, the story of the woman with the two mites. And for me, I'm sitting there like, how can you not read that and see that Jesus is making a strong political statement about what's valuable, about what's meaningful. He looks at this woman who gives her last two pennies and says, she's more faithful. She's more important. She's more holy. Then all the rest of this stuff that y'all have, if you read that and you get anything other than politics, then you're not reading the
1: Bible for real.
2: Or you don't even understand what politics is.
0: Well,
1: there's also that. And for me, it's, it's those two can't be separated, right? It's, it's, it's a value statement on what's important, um, but it also is an indictment. Again, right before Jesus says that this is the value, this is what's important, he says, beware beware of these folks because they destroyed this lady's house. Yes. They're destroying this lady's house.
0: Yes, because what we like to do is read that story and say, keep giving your all to these institutions.
1: Right, right. You get, that lady gave her last. How are you giving your last? And that's how we transform that scripture. But that's right? not
0: what Jesus said. But that's
1: not what Jesus is saying.
0: Jesus said, she's given more than any of you and y'all are ravaging the home of this widow. You are destroying her home. You are displacing her from her home in the middle of a pandemic.
2: And she's giving you the money to do it.
1: And often, this is, a, this is often a scripture I use as an indictment against prosperity gospel. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's also, you know, politically, also it, it applies. And so those things can't, like, for those preachers who are listening, like, you can't just take that and continue to say, how, how are you giving your all to Jesus? Because that's not what was happening in this text.
0: And when you do that, if you map that onto the text, you are the person that Jesus condemns because you are literally enabling housing inequity. Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, you're enabling the continuation of patterns of generational wealth disparities that exist for the people in your community. Mm -hmm. If you celebrate the black woman who gives 10% of her check on top of paying higher taxes than the person in her congregation making six figures... That you're enabling a type of disparity. You have to think about all that you're preaching, both in your p- context, your na- your state context, your national context, and then also the global context, and at some point the universal context when the aliens finally come to take over America. I mean, uh, take over the Earth. Okay, you just went- they
1: already took over. They already took over America. It took a turn. <laughs> I'm sorry,
0: <laughs> took a turn. Took a turn. <laughs> a turn.
2: You wouldn't get this reference, but um, yeah, all of a sudden you start sounding like Aaron Rodgers there, but. Uh,
1: <laughs> I do get the reference I don't, I don't get the reference I don't know what he oh, said he just
2: went into lunacy yesterday on a podcast
0: <laughs> so anyway, we're gonna wrap wow. this section up and take another quick break now um, hopefully that was a helpful sort of exercise and highlighting how we read the text politically and if not send us a question holy shit at we'd love to hear from you and to continue talking about the things you care about when we come back We'll go to the hopeful part of our podcast <laughs> invitations. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back from that quick break. We've now entered this hopeful moment in our pod, our weekly section of hope and celebration, where we think about what we are being invited to. And you know, I do want to sit here and Terry for a while because um, Katie, your mother. And uh, my mother, I think that may be the only two people that I know of, have both said to us, like, can you, can you tell us some hopeful things? And I think for me, I get the impulse of that. And we started doing this invitation segment because I think even we realized what's the turn of these episodes? Where do we get to the place where we're trying to actually shine a light on something? And I think um, for me, and y'all speak for yourselves, I feel like for the way that my life is set up and for the things that I've personally experienced in my life, there's a lot that I got to get through to get to a point of hope. And for me, any sort of hope that doesn't take seriously the tragedy, the oppression, anything that can't wade through that and hope that isn't actually hope. It's an it's a opiate. I might even call it a hopiate, mm. but I'm not here to give people hopiates. <laughs> That's good. Mm. I'm gonna talk about like I like that. Keep, well, well, press press it further. Go.
2: Well, I mean, for me, growing up, like I remember, you learn all all the. Um, I I call it Sunday school faith, right? And it's good. Like I'm I'm glad I have all that upbringing and the knowledge that God loves me. But but there was also this sense that I needed to always have my stuff together. That I needed to, um, like, it's all gonna be better. Why can't we all get along? We can hold hands, and 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 that makes everything else go away. And so you. Sh- so internally, I'm going, but all of this stuff doesn't work. And so, what I find is that um, I can have hope because I can acknowledge what's going on in the world. Like for me, that that um, that belief or that that hope that God is present and active. I'm not sure it always happens, but but the yearning for that is what makes me acknowledge what's going on in the world. That Jesus, Jesus went through all of this stuff too, and and so. Like, that's the hope. Like, he was real. He was real. He was incarnational. Um, And he had shit happen to him. And it's okay to talk about all that. Um, Somehow there's hope in that. I mean, at least for me.
1: I'm suspicious of hope. I'm suspicious of how people want to deploy hope or engineer their versions of hope. Is it the hope that the slave should have had? Is it an eschatological hope because? Uh-oh, there's no hope for here. Is it for off too often? Break the word down Too an eschatological hope or a hope, you know, that won't happen in this life. We should only look toward the next life or, you know, life right, after right, death. Right. Um, in, in this, as the, in, in my grandmother's church, that would be called the sweet by and by when we all get to heaven. You know, for some people, that's, that, that's the only hope that they feel like they could have. And, and then for people who wield power, are you, are you, are you suggesting hope to diminish uh, the prophetic, to, to diminish people calling you out on your shit, to diminish people saying what you're doing is wrong? Are you, are you, do you want hope because you don't like the feeling of discomfort? And, you know, so, so I'm suspicious of hope. I'm suspicious of people using that word. Um, where do you come from when you use that word? Uh, Because if you're sitting in the governor's mansion um, Or if you're a trillion A a billionaire If you're Jeff Bezos Saying, you know I just want everybody to be hopeful Get out of my face with that bullshit Yeah,
0: because in some ways Hope is a luxury That not everyone is afforded And especially depending on how you describe hope this is not an indictment on those of you who've written in, called in, text in to say these types of things. It's us actually trying to wrestle with what you all have said. And what I also know is for every email that we receive from somebody who's like, can you be more hopeful? We get emails from folks like Lorato in South Africa saying, this stuff makes me hopeful because I didn't know that there were people who wear clergy collars who wrestled with things in this way. It makes me feel like Maybe I have a try. And so there's something about naming the harsh conditions that enlivens hope in somebody else. And so if you're being caused discomfort, and I'm not, and that's not what anybody has said, but if you're at a place where you listen to this podcast, maybe this isn't the season for you to be listening to this podcast because you're not at a place where this brings you hope. I would invite you to lean in though and to figure out for those moments where you are made uncomfortable, think about who
1: might be receiving hope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As a result of us causing you discomfort, right? And and, uh, and the the people that you describe, Brandon, like Lorato, I can't do it. I can't. I can't. I can't do it. Like um, Lorato, I'm gonna say it like I'm in Alabama. Uh, those are the people I feel called to. Those are the people I feel called to. That's nothing new. Shh. Shut up, North Carolina. Um,
2: I'm Wisconsin. That's all right.
1: North Carolina, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and. It's the I, I think about the the text where Jesus is I think at the banquet at Matthew's house and the, the Pharisees or whoever come and say you like this dude is hanging with the wrong people like your 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 master uh, or your leader your teacher he's hanging with the wrong folks and Jesus says like these are the people I'm called to I'm not called to the those folks who are comfortable who you know have the power who have the money who you know make all the decisions, I'm called to the people who are hurting or the people who feel like they don't have a community. If they can see hope in the life and the activity in, of challenging these systems, of being prophetic to those who have power, then then I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm not going to stop.
2: Like you're talking about people who have been hurt by the church, people who are finding hope and in, in being able to hear something from three folks who wear collars, but also um even folks who haven't been hurt by the church, this um, this degree of authenticity, the the wrestling, the um, the anger, the frustration. That's all something that people are rarely invited to experience within the context of a community of faith, and so that also brings hope.
0: Absolutely, and I think that may be a nice little transition to our invitations for the week, because I would say that's where my invitation. Uh, comes from, that place of thinking about authenticity and what it means to lean into authenticity. If it is the case that you are a person who is socialized in a way where in your faith calls for a type of inauthenticity, a type of faking, a type of uh, concealing, I'm trying to find the right language because I think there are... Is a better word, but I can't find it right now. If your faith calls for you to conceal aspects of your identity and your person, if your job requires you to conceal aspects of your identity and your person, if your congregation, fill in the blank, whatever it is, if your school, your family, if they call for you to conceal aspects of your identity and to bite your tongue and to not lean into discomfort and truth-telling, if they try to make you swallow lies, that ain't a place that's going to help you grow. It's not a place that's going to give you life or foster life in and among those who need it most. And so the invitation is to think about how authenticity is made manifest in your life and what conditions are necessary to make you feel like you are living into greater levels of authenticity.
2: I think for me, it's the authenticity too. There are some times when people don't know that they're being asked to do something different. My greatest yearning for the church, whatever that looks like, ours, which reaches those who are outside the walls or or anything, is that Pastors and, and members and people in the universe, whether they darken the doors of a church or not, are able to share all that is going on in their world.
1: So my invitation is to pastors and preachers and folks who are preparing sermons, either on a weekly basis or, you know, one time. What Brandon shared, I think is it go, going to be very helpful for you in understanding the context of the places that you go understanding that there there really is no separation from the political and the spiritual. Uh, Now, I attend a church where the pastor talks about politics all the time and people grow weary of that. There's a difference between just talking about Trump and talking about the political uh, nature of the gospel of, of our lives of the way that we engage our spiritual journeys together. Um, and so I encourage those who are operating in word and sermon on Sundays to understand, to, to really pursue what, what is political about this text, about this gospel, about this community that I'm, that I'm trying to deliver a message or a sermon to, to understand that. And, 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 and if you struggle with that, we invite you to come sit with us on a podcast. Let's open up the lectionary and let's do it together. Ole oh, do it.
0: And I would even say, even those of you who don't preach on Sundays, as you're sitting in the pew or sitting on your couch in your jammies watching the live stream, you also think about it being political.
1: It's my invitation. Don't change, Don't change my invitation.
0: If your pastor isn't doing it, if your leader isn't doing it, you fill in the gaps mm. and look next yeah. to you on the pew or look at who's typing in the Zoom chat box that's good and figure out how that text comes alive in your context it'll be transformative for you and your congregation
2: yeah and that's i mean that's also the thing so many churches think that that whoever's standing in the pulpit has the the market on whatever that text is saying like a sermon is a dialogue so your engagement with it you're adding in what you're talking about brandon that makes the word come alive even more don't trust your pastors completely to know what they're talking about. I can say that because of the reverend in front of my name.
1: Don't change my invitation. (laughs) And that brings us to the
2: end of another
0: episode of Holy Shit Pot. Thank you so much for listening, good people. We love, love, love hearing from you. Katie, tell them how they can talk to us. Well, there are two, I mean, there's probably a number of ways because some of you text, some of
2: you email. Some of
0: y'all Instagram DM us.
2: true, that too, that too. All of that's great, Facebook even. If you're the kind of person who likes to email, email us at holy shit at theolabmedia.com and if you like to talk instead of write share a story that's easily more easily captured by your voice then go to our website at theolabmedia.com and click on that purple hexagon cat that's for you click on that purple hexagon and you can record whatever it is that you want to say to us
1: and Sam, talk about that offering. It's giving time. If you like what you're hearing, we want you to head on over to patreoncom media and put a little love offering in the basket. I'm gonna tell you, we need your support. I can't feed my children. I can't. My dog ain't had no food in a week. And so go on Why here you and give, and give him food. that part. <laughs> oh. God is gonna bless you. No, if you like what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com slash steel lab media and put a little love offering in the offering basket. We certainly appreciate
0: it. All right, good people. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Until then, peace.